You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author James Byrne about his new book, Deadlock. James is a journalist living in Portland, Oregon, and he's also the author of The Gatekeeper, which we'll be mentioning in a minute. Welcome to the show, James. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for this. All right. Now, look, you know, this is always of interest to the listeners. James Byrne is actually a pseudonym, correct? Correct. And you have written other books or other things under pseudonyms as well, right? I have. I had a couple of books early on under the name Conrad Haynes, and I've had several books under the name Dana Haynes. Okay. And now I'm with St. Martin's Press on this series as James Byrne. All right. So uh, without revealing something you don't want to reveal, what's the rationale for using pseudonyms? Um, it was a decision by my my editor at Minotaur. His mm-hmm. name is Keith Kayla, and he's sort of legendary. He's arguably the best editor in the mystery realm uh-huh. ever. Uh, he's really, really good. And he, he wanted, he asked for this series. And then after they bought the, the two, the first two books, he, he said, I'd like you to write under a pseudonym because um, we're going to try and call this a tentpole book, which is one of the books for the summer that, that uh, sustains the St. Martin's Minotaur. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Imprint. Uh, uh-huh. it, right. And so, he wanted to try and uh, get the bookstores to buy higher numbers of this book than they bought of my other series. Okay. So they, he said, let's write under a pseudonym. And I said, fine by me. I don't care. Um, <laughs> and it worked, by the way. The sales for this book have been markedly by far my best. That's interesting. Okay. Now, your day job is as a journalist, right? Correct. Do you cover a particular beat or, or, or particular types of uh, stories? Not any longer. I, I For a long period of time, I was a political uh, uh, reporter. I covered the Oregon State House, and I covered uh, state and city and county governance. Covered education a lot. Today, I'm the editor in chief of a 25 newspaper chain, locally owned here in the Portland, Oregon area, that inclo- includes the Portland Tribune. We're a we're essentially a, a micro wire service. We're 25 okay. little one and two and three person newsrooms that can share resources with each other. And I'm the I'm the lead uh, guy for the newsrooms. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. So you obviously, maybe you're not doing as much writing, journalistic writing now as you used to. What's the, is there a difference between writing creatively, for example, in your book like Deadlock and the type of writing politically or whatever that you did uh, when you were uh, a working journalist? Both media inform each other. Okay. I am, I, I think, I believe that I'm a better journalist because I know how to write fiction and I know how to cast a tale and I'm a better uh, novelist because I know about deadlines and I know about um, sitting down and getting the work done. We like to joke that there's no such thing as writer's block in journalism. We call it unemployment. Um, <laughs> well, you uh, know, there are some folks out there that would say that journalism is fiction. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the nice thing about small town journalism, though, because if you go yeah. to your the Beaverton City Council meeting, if you go to the Estacada Chamber of Commerce meeting, what you write has got to be accurate because yeah, the only story sure. in the world is give a darn. And yeah. so we don't run into that same fake news nonsense that the yeah. national media has to deal with. We're covering the local school board and the local uh, softball. I got you. Results. Okay. All right. Well, I got two more questions about writing in that that, that, I, that struck me. One, because I've done this for years. As I understand it, you write out everything longhand first before you type it up, right? You're darn right I do. All right. So what is that? Go, go ahead. I use a steno pad and a pencil, and I write in the mornings. Okay. Because that's how I took notes at meetings for a thousand years 
you know, city council meetings. I, look, I did it for 34 years in my prior career, and I think I know what the advantages are, but what is what do you feel like the advantage is to you for writing out longhand instead of just getting on a typewriter or a typewriter or a computer and typing? <laughs> well, threefold. One is um, uh, if I write longhand, it makes me think a bit harder about all of the nouns and the verbs. If I'm writing on a computer, I can time travel ahead to the end of a, t- yeah. a chapter yeah. or the end of a paragraph, the end of a sentence. But if I'm longhand, I'm really slapping the right noun against the right verb, I think. Okay. The second thing, it gives me a metronome. In a steno pad, I can get about 300 words to a page. And if I look, then later look, and I'm translating it into my computer, and I realize that I didn't move the plot forward, I didn't move the character development forward, I didn't set up a reveal, I didn't do something funny in those 300 pages, my pacing is off. Yeah. I got to pick up the speed. And the third thing it lets me do is it lets me free flow. So it's real easy, and you know this from, from your years mm-hmm. doing the same thing, to just, you know, write a squiggle through some lines and put a carrot in there and add a question mark and make notes that are not for the narrative, but are to myself. Was that yeah. the right way to do that? Is that the right word, wrong word? So I can get a little bit of dialogue inside my head that way. Perfect. Perfect. All right. One more on that. I noticed in reading that you also had a dry spell in your fiction writing. And so for <laughs> folks that are listening that, you know, may have had to deal with that, do you, any suggestions on how you broke out of it? Yeah, there were 15 years between the sale of my, uh, third and fourth novel. And uh, there's that, that, that's a long time. Uh, and mm-hmm. the only way to get through a dry spell is to keep writing. So during those 15 years, I wrote constantly. Now, I couldn't sell a darn thing. I, didn't, right. I, just, I couldn't make any sales whatsoever. Um, but I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And there's, there are many a novel and many an unfinished novel that came out of that era. And every time you write badly, you get better. Every time you write well, you get better. Yeah. Um, every time yeah. you think, oh, you know, that structure that, that worked or that, you know, the three-story arc mm-hmm. worked in this. Every time you do that, you get a little bit better. So the only way out of the dry spell is to keep writing. Keep yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, rem- I seem to recollect reading about Charles Bukowski, and he wrote every day and it said something like he threw away 70% of what he wrote, but it was the process of doing it to getting moving. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. All right, so let's talk about the new book, Deadlock. As I understand it, it's the second book in a series, right? Correct. All right, tell us where this title comes from. Um, I had thought that the primary character, Des <clears throat> Limerick, has, mm-hmm. has a gift. He, was, he served in a military. I don't say which military. Right. And he was a breach expert. His job was to open doors for his unit, to open a door, to keep it open as long as necessary, to close it when necessary, and to control who does and does not get through the door. So his, his whole domain is the ability to open doors and keep them open. So my initial thought was to try and use words like lock and key and, and gate and door in the, in the titles. I don't know how long I can sustain it. My editor was teasing me that by book five, I'll be calling it door jam or something. <laughs> right. right. Um, but that was, it was a, it's a nod to the one thing, okay. one of the few makes Des stand out. All right, and, and I, you alluded to this, but let me just ask. So he's known, and I want to talk more about him, but he's known as a gatekeeper, right? Is that the same thing that you were just explaining? Correct. Okay, gotcha. All right, the main character in the book is, let's give his full name, Desmond Aloysius Limerick, Des for <laughs> short. Uh, Aloysius is big down here. There used to be a school named Aloysius. Oh, okay. How, yeah, how would you describe his personality? When I wanted to do this, you know, a... a 
single male protagonist action adventure. I got to tell you, first time I'm a huge fan. I read Greg Hurwitz and mm-hmm. Steve Barry and Robert Cray and 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 uh, Meg Gardner, and I love all those folks. I, and I didn't want to do what they do, so I thought and thought and thought, and finally decided to write a character for one of these thriller series who has no angst. Des is retired, 35, traveling around the country with a guitar, picking up gigs where he can, and thinks of himself as just the luckiest bloke in the world. Mm-hmm. He's happy. He likes his work. He likes what he's doing. Um, he's funny, although he's funnier than he thinks he is. He's constantly saying things that Americans don't understand. Right. And he just has a complete lack of angst. And I thought it would be so refreshing to do an action-adventure hero who's not brooding. He's the yeah. opposite of brooding. Mm-hmm. He, he is, yeah. I love the personality. All right, so authors will always tell me this, and, and I know listeners from the feedback we get sometimes will say that this is one of the more surprising things that they learn, that if you create a good character, the character helps write the story. Have you found that to be true with Des? Yes. If I am smart enough to sit down, he will write his own dialogue. And quite often, um, I will set up crises uh, uh, and then, you know, go make dinner or go go to work or do whatever I need to do and think, how would Des get out of that? And I discovered that Des gets out of things a lot differently than I would have. So he comes, he does a lot of his own dialogue and he writes the end of the arcs of the scenes happen because of him. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, a couple more points on that. I Actually, early in, in the time period when I was doing the show, I had a guy in and I asked him, an author, and I asked him that. <laughs> it sounded a little psychotic, but he said, you know, sometimes I'll write something and my character will say, no, no, I'm not going to do that, right? <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and he'll have to change it. Do you live with your character? So let's you talk about Des. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, uh, as you're going about your normal work, um, are there moments where you Des kind of intrudes into your thoughts and you think, okay, you know, I, I got to remember that for Des? Yes. In, in, in many ways that does happen. And occasionally I teach uh, mystery writing, like at uh-huh. the community college level. And one of the things I often tell people is you really need a protagonist that you're going to enjoy and you're going to be with because this protagonist is going to be in your head for months, if not a year or more. So find a protagonist that doesn't annoy you. Because it's a relationship. Uh-huh. So, yeah, Des, definitely I will hear something in the back of my mind or I'll hear some something at work. And I watch a lot of British television and I'll catch a colloquialism. And I'll think, oh, Des, right. I got to remember that. <laughs> All right. So in the book, initially, Des is contacted by a friend, Reza, Reza, I guess that's how it's pronounced, because her sister Layla needs some help. And interestingly, Layla is a reporter like you. But things get more complicated with the nature of the bad guys who are a threat to Layla, um, including a company named uh, Clockjack, and individuals start disappearing from the witness protection program. Did you outline this, or did this evolve organically as you wrote? I am, um, as they say, a pantser. I don't, <laughs> I don't outline. Uh, and, but I'm also an ex-theater guy. I did theater in high school and college uh-huh. and some theater before I got into journalism. And I, and I write in the three-act um, structure. So I almost always know the, three, the inciting incident that gets us out of Act 1, mm-hmm. the thing that ratchets up the tension. And I know the inciting incident that gets us out of Act 2, the thing that really, you know, really ratchets up the tension. But I almost never know how a story ends until I get there. So for me, the idea was Des is a big, strong, burly fella, and he's quite smart and, and book smart. Uh, he has uh, engineering and computer backgrounds. Um, so I needed a protagonist that would challenge him not on the 
punch-up level, but would challenge him uh, on the tech level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I thought, oh, let's do it. And, you know, I live in the Northwest, and we have some big old tech companies here. We've got the Silicon Forest. So I thought, that might be a lot of fun. Let's introduce a, a bad guy that's going to challenge Des on his cerebral end of the scale, not on his who can make a bigger muscle end mm-hmm. of the scale. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you mentioned something that I that I I'm, I'm kind of thinking through, but I find fascinating because I haven't heard this before. You you have used. Tell me if I'm wrong. You've used your theater background as kind of the framing of how you create your novel. Am I hearing yeah. that right? That is correct. And it comes in a couple of different ways. One is I really understand. I think I really understand the three act structure and how to make that work for my advantage. Secondly, I know how to choreograph and block scenes. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing any kind of complicated scene, including a fight scene, I can, I will literally block it out. There have been times there was a book that we took place at the cathedral in Milan and my wife, Katie King and I went there and we walked the scene. We were on vacation and I said, this is how the bad guys approach. And here's what they see and here's what they hear and here's what they're, the sensory overload and here's how the, the protagonist approaches and this is what she'll see in here and and then i will i often draw out the choreography or the blocking of scenes so yeah my theater background has been super helpful that's interesting well let's make sure listeners can understand when you say you block it out tell me what that means um literally i will if there's a scene that looks a little bit complicated i will draw it on a sketch pad and where the ah. where the doors are and where the furniture is so that if I say Des turns to his left, the thing I'm talking about better be on his left. Um, and I can and I can literally pin it up on a board and look at it and say, no, no, it is not his left. It's on his right. That's not the direction he would have turned. So um, and blocking on stage uh, on stage is when the actor is told, go downstage to that X mark down there. Go to say, go downstage left and cheat at 45 degrees. That's the blocking for theater. So okay. I do that in in scenes. So you're basically visualizing your scenes before you write them. Very much so, yes. Okay. All right. Now, Clockjack, the company that's uh, referenced in there, they have a legitimate business that's rather interesting. In fact, it's a concept I've often <laughs> wondered about if it was possible. Can you describe Clockjack's legitimate business? Four professors at Portland State University back in the, I forget if I said the 80s, I think it may have been the 90s, mm-hmm. um, they invented this idea that you could pay your taxes to the federal government and cheat towards the type of government you want. So you pay all your taxes into escrow. And then an algorithm would say on this hour, at this day, the defense department is not drawing what it usually draws, but the parks department is, or the defense department is drawing more. And if you pay your taxes at that moment, a higher percentage of your taxes will go to that, those things, which you really like. So if you think foreign aid is important, your money up, you know, a slight fraction of your money will go towards that more than it would go to say some program that you don't like. Right. So I don't know. I believe this is probably completely impossible, but I needed something that I had not read anywhere else and I had not seen anywhere else. So it took me a long time to come up with that notion that this is the thing they invented. And I guess at some level it, it sort of resonates with readers. But I've had people tell me it seems like there should be something like that. Yeah, that's actually a thought I've had for years is, you know, I wish I could take my taxes and allocate them where I want them to go. Um, so I think that will resonate with folks. All right. In addition, uh, there are some possible similarities in the story. We don't want to give too much away, but with some geopolitical situations, like right? one of the villains in the book uh, is building an international army of mercenaries like Wagner in Russia or, or maybe Blackwater, I guess. Uh, were you cognizant of these possible parallels when you were writing it? 
Yes. My, because of my journalism background, I, most of my books take place about five minutes in the future. And I, um, things that are going on that I'm reading in the New York Times and the Washington Post and hearing on NPR definitely color my writing. So I write in, in Realpolitik and I write in the real world. In the previous book, um, Deadlock, excuse me, The Gatekeeper, I had, um, I'm, and which I wrote in, you know, 2019, 2020, I made some references to some trouble going on between Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I also had a right wing insurgency uh, mm. here in the United States. And a couple of years later, both those things were dominating the news cycles. Mm-hmm. So writing as I do in real time does mean I run the risk of the world spinning either in the direction that I'm writing or away from what I'm writing. That's that, that's one of the that's one of the challenges. Well, but you know what? It's, it strikes me, and, and tell me if this is accurate, that it's important when you're writing a thriller like Deadlock that you anchor it in some way in real events that people can be familiar with or can identify with. Is that accurate? I think so. I'm, I always appreciate um, when a writer does that, when I can say, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's rooted me in the real world. Now I know where we are. Writers like Meg Gardner are terribly good at that. Robert Cray is terribly good at that. And I really admire their ability to do that stuff. Okay. All right. So one of the other questions I like to ask fiction writers is, you know, you take a character like Des, complicated character, but very interesting character, and you put him in situations, and then you have to think about and think through how he gets out of those situations. In doing that, even though he is, a, you know, this is, this is a different type of genre than, say, you know, um, family stuff. Do you learn anything about yourself when you put him in those situations and he has to work his way through? Wow. What a good question. Yeah. You know, I, I think I do. One of the things I learn about myself is my own limitations of my education. I got a bachelor's degree in political science and I've been working in newspapers and, and, and the political world all of my life. So from time to time, a problem will come up and I'll think, well, there's nothing in James Burns' background that would help him solve this problem. If I were on the page, if I were in the scene, I'd be screwed. Um, mm-hmm. So knowing that, now I need to go find out what is that I don't know. So it, inventing a character who's got some engineering background and is good with computers, I have neither of those two things, means that it, I'm really learning sharply the definitions of the things I don't know. Okay. Are, is there any psychological advantage? In other words, things you learn about your your own psychology or anything like that? That is such a good question. Des is a very happy-go-lucky, yeah. exuberant and happy guy who is capable of being ruthless. Uh, and I am, like most people I know, conflict-averse. If there's a problem at work, I will dilly-dally and I'll wait weeks before I tell anybody, you know, and, and then try and soft soft sell it and hope nobody's mad at me. I'm like every other uh, mid-level manager in the world. I'm not really great at that. Des, on the other hand, is a soldier. And so Des thinks there's only two categories in the world, win and loss, and you do what you need to do to be in the first category. So knowing that I am not a ruthless and quick decision maker, I tend to, you know, committee everything and uh, paralysis through analysis, as we all do in, in our industry. And it's fun to have a character who is the exact polar opposite of me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, for, as a reader, I think in a, in a different way, and I certainly felt this way a little bit about Des, that you do pick up things and you force yourself to think, in good writing, you force yourself to think about how you might respond to some of these things. And, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. that has an effect on it. All right, am I correct 
that the way the book ends, that you're setting the stage for the next book in the series? You are correct. <laughs> all right, good. All right, a couple more questions. Um, you know, I ask writers all the time, why do you write? And some will say, um, you know, I write just for myself. And others will say that they write to make a social point or a political point. And, and a couple will say, I do it for the money. What is it that compels you to write? I mean, you have obviously another career. Uh, what is it that compels you to write? I, um, I really enjoy it a great deal. It's a, it, is a, it is an advocation of joy for me, and I write pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I have something specific to write. I'm working on a manuscript, and I need to get to Chapter 7. That's the next thing. And sometimes I will sit down, and, and, I'll, and I'll write concepts either a character concept or a plot concept, and then put those in a file in my computer and maybe maybe never think about them again or maybe dredge them up years later. Um, but the, um, I, and I often tell when I'm teaching writing, I'm often telling people, you should be your own first reader. You should be writing books that entertain you. Because if you don't, then writing becomes a chore. And so, um, yeah, I write all the time and I write for the pure love of it. And every now and then I get incredibly lucky and I get paid for it. Um, <laughs> But I always think of that as a, as a mitzvah. That's the, you know that that's the gravy. That's awesome. Yeah. But if I didn't get paid for it, like I didn't for fifteen years, it's still right. I got you. All right. What, you know, let me ask one other question about uh, somewhat related to that. Um, because you were talking about the class that you teach and reading. Do you have people that you rely on, as for lack of a better word, your proofreaders? But more than that, you know, to say, hey, you know what, this scene doesn't really work, or and and things like that couple of things. One is my wife, Katie King, is uh-huh. really smart, much, much smarter than I am. And she reads everything okay. in multiple drafts. And she's very honest. She'll just say that didn't work and that bit of dialogue didn't work. Uh, and and he, here's why it, she'll make notes in the manuscript that here's where I stopped reading. Mm-hmm. Let me know. It's possible my pacing got dulled out a little bit there. And she, okay. she, she's really good. Secondly, I'm an American. I'm from, you know, Idaho and Oregon. And I'm writing a character who is from the United Kingdom. So I had two different people, one who works for St. Martin's and one who's just a friend, the novelist Meg Gardner, who read the manuscripts to look for my British colloquialism. Uh And they were, they were, they were super helpful. Really, really, really helpful. That's good. So good writer for those folks listening that are, that are trying to write or do write, having somebody that, uh, that's a good proofreader, that's a good commentator on your writing is helpful. Yeah. All right. Um, All right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I also uh, writers should know that I have known many, many writers who are in writing circles uh, and uh, get together with friends to to critique or to work on each other's novels who tell me it's tremendously helpful or tremendously toxic. So I would remind anybody who wants to be a writer or is a writer that writing circles can be great, but get into the right one because the bad ones will strip you of the joy of writing and good ones will really uh, spark your joy. Yeah, lift you up. Okay. Let me end with this question. You know, unfortunately, we we do live in a polarizing time, and uh, there's book bannings and other things, authors being attacked. Are there any topics when you're considering what you're writing uh, that you avoid, purposely avoid? Well, there are, but not for that reason. Okay. Um, uh, I am not a fan of the mystery thriller subgenre that involves misogyny. I don't want gotcha. to write about pretty girls getting stabbed. <laughs> I don't want to write about serial killers going after women. Um, I think that 
an insanely popular and insanely profitable subgenre that I would like to go away. It's just I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to write about that stuff. Uh, and uh, it, it, it permeates movies. There are entire television shows yeah. dedicated to the notion of specific women victims. And I just I have a lot of strong female characters in my books, but mm-hmm. I, and I don't write about serial misogyny because that's just not interesting. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because jumping back to uh, Deadlock for a moment, I really like the character of Riza. Riza, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. You are. Uh, yeah, I really liked her character. Layla also, but I thought she, <laughs> you know, you it's any good writing. You imagine these characters in your mind, you know, and you give them attributes and what they look like and those types of things. And and certainly she was one that, that resonated with me. I really appreciate hearing that. That's great. I have a lot of strong female characters in my books, but I uh-huh. thought on this one, wouldn't it be fun to do two people who are in their early to mid-20s right. or strong female protagonists? So they're strong in a different way than one of the protagonists of the first book was the chief financial officer for an international corporation. She's strong in the way she's strong. And there's a spy in this book. She's MI6, and she's strong in the way she's strong. But I thought it would be fun to have a young songwriter, singer-songwriter, and a young journalist who have strengths but the strengths don't come from years and years of experience. They just come from inner turmoil. Well, so that was, I appreciate that that resonated. With you. Well, you know, and there's a dynamic. We, we, we don't have enough time to cover everything. We don't want to reveal everything. Mm-hmm. But there's a dynamic between Reza and Layla that's really interesting to me. You know, anybody that's had any kind of family-related, you know, I'm not sure what the right word is, is going to identify with these two sisters and some of the things that underlay the relationship between them. That's really good to hear. I really appreciate that. All right. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Folks, you've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I have been lucky enough to speak with author James Byrne about his new thriller, Deadlock, part of a series. Pick it up. It's a good one. James, is there a website or other social media that folks can go to in order to learn more about you and about the book? Uh, James Byrne Thriller. JamesBurnThriller.com, and I'm on all the social medias that I can't stand, but I have to be on it because it's part of the job. <laughs> all right, and folks, Burns is spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Well, James, thanks for being on the show. Mike, it's been a total pleasure. All right. Folks, music for the show, the intro and the outro, is provided by Valerie Hunt Jester, and the show is produced by Tyler O'Brien.